hello and welcome to America Can We Talk, one of our very special Thursday shows. Love doing Thursday shows because we have an in-studio audience and they are able to ask questions at the end. And if you'd like to be in our in-studio audience, we ask people to become members of America Can We Talk. You can do that at americacanwetalk.org. This is a show, America Can We Talk, is four days a week, Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. I have the great joy of hosting this show four days a week talking about saving America. The entire purpose of the show is saving America. That is it. Today, our Thursday guest is a gentleman uh, who is really widely known within Texas, especially North Texas. He's a candidate for U.S. Congress. And I'm thrilled with the idea that just maybe, maybe we're going to be able to get a Republican majority um, after the fall elections in the U.S. House, in the U.S. Senate. And the gentleman we're interviewing today is a candidate for Congress from here in Texas, Congressional District 3. And this is a race which a lot of people are watching because, and a candidate who's very, very popular because he's been a leader in the community, has a fabulous military background, really the kind of candidate the Republican Party would like to run uh, in many, many places. I'm going to do a little more introduction of him. Then turn, we'll talk with him about a whole host of issues that are facing America and how the Republican Party should respond should we be, uh, should we win the majority again in Congress. So to start with, this gentleman's name is Keith Self. Our guest today is Keith Self, and uh, he has, prior to being a candidate today for U.S. Congress, he actually attended, I'm going to tell you just a few quick things about him, the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. you got to love those West Pointers. So uh, graduated from the Military Academy, served in the U.S. Army for 25 years. I'll tell you more about that service in just a moment. And then he was elected to serve as a Collin County judge. And in Texas, the county judge is like a mayor is of a city. It's the chief executive of the county. He served, was very, very popular, very much a leader in that role in Collin County, standing up for conservative positions. Back to his military background, which does matter to his, his uh, just readiness to serve in the U.S. Congress um, after he uh, left the military uh, graduated from West Point. Um, he was an Army officer. Um, he recalled back to... he. Retired in 1999, recalled to active duty in 2002, uh, 2003, under uh, service in Afghanistan and Qatar, uh, serving under General uh, Tommy Frank staff. Um, he served in the U.S. Embassy in Cairo, Egypt. Uh, he was 12 years joint assignments, which means they integrate Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. They all have to get along with each other. And they, he served the U.S. Embassy in Cairo, Egypt, um, and, and helping manage $2 billion in U.S. taxpayer-funded military aid, uh, served the U.S. European command in Germany, uh, serve at the Pentagon, <coughs> National Security Council, NATO military staff, just a wide range of experience, which actually in this particular era in American history, when we have such a concern about foreign policy, uh, makes him just an extraordinary candidate running for Congress from Texas, Congressional District 3. I'm going to bring on and welcome Keith Self. Thank so. you for having me, Debbie. Good to be here. It is great to have you. Honestly, you know, I, I will tell our listeners, so I don't live, or I actually technically now live in the area where he was Collin County Judge. We live in Dallas County many years, and my Collin County friends would often tell me this, Keith Self, he's the real deal. He's a real, genuine, conservative leader. So I, I just love that. So you are about to, you're in your midst of your campaign for Congress, and I was going to try to break this interview in kind of two parts. Uh, one is just kind of the idea that um, we have many, many reasons that conservatives are upset about the direction of the country. Very upset. And, and many people saying, well, if we get the majority back, we should do all these things. I want to ask you about those things, like should we do these things if we get the majority back? And then second is, 
Should we have a broader, bigger agenda as conservatives to tell America what we're going to stand for? But let's dive into right now. So many people not very happy about what occurred uh, with Hunter Biden or what appears to occur from Hunter, with Hunter Biden. And many people saying, look, if the Republicans have the majority, they should look into at uh, the U.S. Congress should have a committee look into Hunter Biden's dealings in the Ukraine with Burisma and other things. What's your thought on that? Absolutely. Once we uh, get the majority, and we will get the majority, and we will have a large majority, uh, absolutely we should for the rule of law. It's not revenge. It's the rule of law. If we're going to stand for the rule of law, we've got to investigate it. Uh, you know, I gotta love that. Uh, there's also a lot of discussion about, uh, well, the whole episode we've been going through with COVID. We had Dr. Fauci, who's still, he's actually kind of mysteriously been missing the last few Absolutely. weeks. I don't know where he is. He hasn't let me know, but he's kind of in hiding or something. But he was very instrumental, it appears, uh, in connection with the Wuhan lab where this COVID-19 virus came out, so uh, came from. Is it your sense that the Congress should try to investigate Dr. Fauci, the NIH, and our connection with, in any way, funding or aiding the Wuhan lab? Absolutely, because enough has come out that we know there are tentacles there. We've just got to figure them out. And I don't think we know them yet, but yes, we've got to. Because what that did to our small businesses, to the economy in America, we've got to figure it out before it happens again. If we let this one go, we'll see the next one. Absolutely. And I, you know, I remind people so often, I'm sure you think about it too, whatever we did do is taxpayer dollars. It, it's, it's our dollars. It, it's not that the government had money and decided to do something, but this is taxpayer use of money. And it just seems like the Congress ought to be a watchdog on that just for that reason. What is the valid reason? And I'd love to have your thought on that. Um, we spend taxpayer dollars on a lot of things that we shouldn't be spending taxpayer dollars on. So this is not unusual or, or unique, but absolutely, uh, it's one of the many things that we need to be uh, reviewing for, for taxpayer dollars. Okay, love that. Okay, on to the January 6th episode, uh, which you know galvanized the nation last year, January 6th, 2021. There's a lot of concern that the January 6th committee is kind of looking into uh, the backgrounds of people who were in any way supportive of President Trump. Do you think that there should be an effort, should the Republicans get the majority, should there be an effort to look into what the FBI's role may or may not have been in the January 6th episode? FBI, uh, whether or not Nancy Pelosi conducted her job adequately in, in securing the Capitol. Is it something to pursue or something to drop if we get control? That's a great question. Your last question is good because we don't want to look like a banana republic that we're always punishing the past. On the other hand, again, the rule of law, the January 6th commission as it's set up today uh, is simply intimidating and harassing conservatives and they will until November. It's, it's gonna happen. Uh, on the other hand, we must, uh, we must take a look at what actually did happen because the American people deserve to know. I'll just share one story with you. There are four women in Collin County, they all went to the mall. They weren't anywhere near the Capitol. Three of the four posted their experiences on social media. Each of those three got visited by the FBI. The fourth one did not post her experiences on social media. She has not been visited by the FBI. I believe that that is not the role of the FBI to investigate Americans who simply were on the mall in DC on January the 6th. 
that must be investigated. That is a great story. It is, it appears to be, the politicization of the FBI's role if you're going after people who just showed up to hear who was still the, the then president that day. Not politicization, but weaponization. Weaponization, yes. When the government is weaponized against our citizens, that is not the role of government. That is the bottom line that Congress needs to get to. Because January 6th, now I admit it came out of the Patriot Act, under a Republican president, but they have now perfected it, and the January 6th Commission has given uh, permission to weaponize against citizens. Yeah, it's, I mean, some of the stories, I don't know if you're able to see the film, Nick Searcy made a film, Capital Punishment, it was a documentary. I have not. Yeah, he, um, I had him on my show, and he, we played portions of that film. It really is alarming, the number of stories where people, similar to what you recounted, people went to Washington, you know, went to the Capitol, maybe, I mean, they, they heard President Trump speak, they never went inside the Capitol, right. and had the FBI at their front door. Right. It, it, it's a very... It doesn't feel like it belongs in America. It's the government kind of is sending a signal to people about the current administration not willing to tolerate support for the past administration. You said it exactly right. It's not just the people that were there on January 6th. They now have warned the rest of us, don't step out of line or you'll get the same treatment. Oh, yeah, it's, it's very alarming. And it's actually working. I mean, it's actually working. It is. People, it is. I don't think I'm going to go that march. I think I'll stay home That's when they right. might otherwise have gone. That's right. It's, well, it's a, it's a direct attack. It has a chilling effect on the First Amendment, I would say, and your willingness to speak up, to participate in, um, you know, and assemble Correct. in Washington and other places, too. Okay, uh, similar to that, the January 6th defendants, uh, there are... I, I'm not sure these numbers, I think it's over 300 still in jail, over 600 still charged, something like that. And many of them seem to have been incarcerated and kept there, some of them claiming without due process, they still haven't been charged with anything. Is that something Congress should look into? Absolutely. Um, the few congressmen that have actually been to the jail, we should have had every Republican congressman standing there demanding answers. And we didn't. Uh, so you, you're using Congress in the broad sense. The Republican, uh, the Republican members of Congress ought to be there, uh, not holding committee hearings, going to the jail and saying what is happening inside. Absolutely. I know one who did that was Congressman Louis Gomer. He did. God bless that man. And I believe the other one was Marjorie Taylor Greene. She did. And, and both of them, maybe others have also, but the two of them at least, they, they kind of, because it was very powerful to send that signal to America, these two people at least on the Republican side are watching what you're doing to these defendants. And I agree, it's really kind of shocking there weren't more. Why do you think more people didn't do that? Why did more Republicans do that? I'm not going to try to... Uh know the hearts of the Republican congressman. <laughs> okay. yeah, see, if you're on trial, I guess I refuse to speculate. Okay. Okay. Don't speculate. All right. <laughs> okay. And you know, the, uh, those are kind of, they are the preliminary things. And I like what you said earlier about the idea we can't be, if we were to regain the majority in the House and Senate, we can't be just the, the party of we're going to go after all these things that occurred in the right. past. Right. We have to be saying, no, we're going to move forward and here's the kind of things we want to do. And I meant to ask you before we started. I'm sorry I didn't, and I'll let you do it now before I launch into uh, my next set of questions, but what issues drive you to run? Why do you want to run for Congress? Well, the big issue was uh, Congressional District 3 needs a voice in Congress, and we didn't feel like we had that. 
many people felt like we did not have that. So the first, the first mission is to return a voice to CD3, uh, to stand for what my constituents, my future constituents, hopefully, will want me to stand for and to be a voice, uh, not to go up and disappear into the bowels of Congress, but to be a voice, to stand for the things that are important to CD3. Well, this is a pretty conservative district, right? I mean, CD3 is a plus something R, isn't it? Um it has moved from maybe plus four to maybe plus 14. Okay, and the, the reason, I'm glad you're saying that, and I am going to get into it, with the, to tell our listeners, the, where I want to go next with this is, you may have all seen that Senator Rick Scott put together an 11-point plan. He said, basically, here's what Republicans should do. And he didn't really have the permission, apparently, of the leadership of the Republican Party. He just said, here's where I'm going with this. I want to run through those and kind of talk about, are these wise things? That's where we're going to head with that. But Because um, um, I think it's important to to lead. Or actually, one question I want to ask you is, you know, it's important to lead. But on your point about your district, in Congress, every member, every of all 435, they have a home district. Many of them are a majority Democrat district, and they get a Democrat representative. And it seems like Democrats never cease to stand up for every left-wing agenda item that exists. And the endless lament on the Republican side, even when you have someone who's won in a Republican-majority district, you don't get that sense of fight out of many members of Congress. Do you think that's fair? I think that's fair. So why is that? Are you again, again not speculating? Again, I'm not going to speculate. Let me get there and get to know the Texas delegation, first of all, and uh, get to learn them and see where we can take this. Yeah. I just think, I mean, the whole concept of the U.S. House to have one member for every, I think, whatever, 600,000, 700,000 people? 766 now. 766. That is, it is the people's house. It is the place where the voice should be most heard of the people in Washington. So I, I love you have that thought about that, that your people, that your district should have that voice. Well, I was the county judge for a county of over a million. So, I mean, I understand the local uh, idea of politics. All politics is local because as a county judge, I experienced it. People want your ear. They want to hear what you've got to say about the issues. And I intend to take that to Congress. Okay. Well, let's talk about those issues. All right. uh, as, as an overarching uh, question first is, right now, so Senator Rick Scott put out his 11-point plan. Mm -hmm. And he is, he wasn't just a member of the Senate. You know, he, was, he is still, I believe, the chair of the Republican senatorial committee, whatever, right. that raises money for the Republicans and, and helps bring along a push toward a Republican majority. He put out an 11-point plan. Senator McConnell, um, who is the minority leader, uh, both publicly rebuked him and just said, this will not be our agenda. I mean, openly said on media, this will not be our agenda, and apparently privately rebuked him. And McConnell's uh, point was, all we need to do to win the Senate this fall is to say no to the Biden agenda. Point out everything that Biden's doing wrong. We don't have to do an agenda of our own. So which side is right? To me, the goal is not winning the Senate. The, to me, the goal is saving America. That's what we need to be doing. We can win the Senate. I think we will win the Senate. But that is not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is, and what I would like to see out of these, is not simply uh, great talking points, great issues, 
I would like to see when I when I take office in January of next year, which I fully expect to do, to have a list of bills that those talking points have been turned into that the first hundred days, like remember the Reagan's first hundred days, first 90 days, I think were just tremendously powerful. That's what I would like to see, like uh, Newt Gingrich's contract with America. He had the bills ready to go. And let's uh, sure we'll have a Democrat president, but I want to see the bills that he translates these points into ready to vote on. I love that answer, and I love your reference to Reagan. He just he hit the ground running Absolutely. with the help of what the um, in the name of Heritage Foundation created the right. document he worked from. But and I was going to make the analogy also to Newt Gingrich. You need to tell voters more than just we're really mad about what the left did and you should be mad too, but you should, here's what we're going to do because people are, are yearning to hear activism out of the leaders in Washington and, and not just kind of repetition of yes, it's terrible and this is wrong and this is wrong, but we know what's right and we know what, what we to fight for. So I, I love that. I love that comparison to, to um, Newt Gingrich too. And that contract with America was huge. And I think actually of the items that they had, they, they did get a bill on the floor for every one of the items. I don't think I got them all through. They didn't, no. But they got they a bill on the floor, right? Absolutely. Yeah, they had 10 bills ready to roll. Yeah. So you're putting it, you're telling them we're moving on this. We're not just chatting. I want to see action, not just talk. I love that let's, line. Let's, action, not talk. Yeah, I'm in favor of exactly. that. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> okay. One more thing before we get into these uh, specifics about what um, I just thought Senator Rick Scott captured many of the issues people are deeply concerned he about. He also wrote editorial in the Wall Street Journal. I don't know if you happen to see it, but he called, called it Why I'm Defying Beltway Cowardice. You already love the title. I love the title. Okay, so Rick Scott wrote, and I want to ask you what you think about this. He said, number one, there's no point in taking control of Congress if we just simply return to business as usual. He was, he's responding to McConnell telling him to be quiet. You must, you must like that point. I actually posted uh, something along those, a quote from him, not from that, a couple of days ago on Facebook, because I think that's exactly right. Taking the Senate is not the point. Action is the point. Winning America. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so he has something I want to ask if you think he's overstating the case. He said, we are losing this country. The militant left has seized control of the federal government, the news media, big tech, academia, Hollywood, the Democrat Party, most corporate boardrooms, and even some of our top military leaders. The elites atop our nation's institutions are working hard to redefine America and silence their opposition. They want to end the American experiment and replace it with a woke socialist utopia and we are sitting around watching it happen. Is he overstating the case? Absolutely not. That is the case. Well said. It, it is well said. I mean, I just want to stand up for every chapter, every paragraph he wrote. I won't read the whole thing, I promise. But he did have, I mean, paragraph after paragraph, he's, you, you realize he's been listening, I think, to the voters and to the serious conservatives and saying it's not enough to just criticize the left and cheer on with broad talking points. So he's saying, I mean, he sounds very much like you think. Well, I will tell you, that's what's happening in America today. I think people are waking up to the fact. We saw it in Virginia uh, with, the, with the election of Governor Youngkin. And I think that people are waking up to the fact that we are being controlled by all of those uh, entities that he just spoke about. And I think we're gonna see some dramatic pushback. Uh, and I think we're going to see it in the 2022 election, but the Democrats also see their window closing. It closes in January 2023 because I, we will take at least the House, if not the Senate. And uh, so we're going to see a desperate party over the next uh, 
10 months. Absolutely true. On the subject of taking back the House and or Senate, um, are you concerned about election fraud and what role that might play? Of course. Um, of course. Uh, but again, people know about it now. Uh, we've just got to be vigilant and put in place those poll watchers at the central offices. Okay, poll watchers is one thing. What do you think about trying to tamp down on the massive sending out of mail-in ballots? Uh, the elections administrator in Collin County is the expert in Texas, Bruce Sherbert. He tells me that absolutely the mail-in ballot is the weak link because you lose control of it once it leaves the office until it gets back. Uh, it is the weak link and that's what we need to be vigilant about. Uh, Dinesh D'Souza has a movie out that, uh, that, will, uh, that follows uh, geolocating these mules that carry these things. That is something we have got to get a handle on. Uh, it is the weak link in the American electoral system. Uh, it's unimaginably dangerous. And I think in part the left used the grotesque exaggeration of the COVID problem sure. to justify that. Sure. And, and everyone kind of didn't want to be the one to say, you know, they, they were afraid of being accused of being, um, you know, endangering people. Right. If it, so they just went along with it. Right. One other thing uh, he says, and I think it's really interesting, because I, um, it's easy to be a talk show host because, I mean, people can criticize me, but they can't vote me out of office or anything. But I'm going to tell you one thing he said. If we have no bigger plan than to be a speed bump on the road to socialism, we don't deserve to govern. First of all, do you think we're on the road to socialism in America? We're on the road. That is not determinative of the future. I think we can redeem this. I do too. I do too. But I think, I think for a long time when people would use, I've started talking about socialism probably before people, I mean, sometimes I would look out, I was giving a speech and mm -hmm. look out at the audience, they look kind of, I wonder why she's saying that. And I think now there are more people recognizing it. Is this because the socialists didn't take over in a military overthrow. It's just an ideological push. It took a while, but I think people, I agree, people are seeing it and they don't want it. Right. Okay, one other thing he had to say, he also said most Republicans in Congress agree with the idea that we're, that we're, we're, we're on the road to socialism, but many live in fear of speaking the truth in Washington, because if you do, the Democrats will attack you and use it against you. Is that good? Is that fair? Of course. We see it every day. Okay, so how are you going to be strong enough to fight that? Um, I've already had two careers. I don't, yeah, I actually was in retirement for three years. I was living the life of Riley. I hiked 120 miles in the Alps. I river rafted in Alaska. My wife and I took a mission trip to Sierra Leone. Uh, we toured northern Italy. I was living the life of Riley, and yet I see what's happening in America today. That's why I'm back. What can they give me? What can they do to me? There is nothing that they can do to me. Uh, and I, I understand what he's saying, and he's absolutely right. But frankly, I'm back because I want to do this. And there's nothing that scares me. I love that. That's good. Love me that's scary. That's really good. Because he's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he actually talks about the atmosphere in Washington being what many Republicans recognize if we speak up, we challenge the leftist agenda, we're going to basically be told, he said, uh, that we're going to be attacked. So he says, so for most Republicans, they tell us best to keep your head down, vote as directed, and be quiet. Oh, oh. This is this why he's saying Republicans are told this. And so um, I've already had some calls, and certainly not to name any names, of uh, congressmen that tell, have already told me that. We need to be united in this. And I'm like, nah, I'm going to represent my constituents. Uh, so, yes, I've already gotten those calls. Wow. 
From Republicans. From Republicans. Understand how the, the game is played. Right. Yeah, wow. Okay, uh, there's one thing. Um, actually, I'm going to put a comma there and go to what he had to say because I mean, these are just a good opportunity to kind of run through the issues. And I know you serve in the military. Before we dive into what Rick Scott is proposing that the Republicans take on, he's saying this has got to be, this is our contract with America for this year, for 2022. Um, you have military experience, broad range of military experience. So you look at the situation in Ukraine and Russia. Do you want to comment at all, like what you think America's role should be? Well, we are still the representative superpower of the West. If we don't accept that responsibility, uh, the entire world will be affected. Now, I am not for putting troops on the ground, but I think there's more that we can be doing. Uh, I think that we need to reinstitute something like Radio Free Europe used to be to be pumping the, uh, the Western ideas into Russia and Ukraine to encourage Ukraine and to get the Russian people to uh, to be against Putin because they are the ones that will uh, depose Putin. Uh, so we need to be pumping something, whatever the modern equivalent of Radio Free Europe is, pumping that into both Russia and Ukraine. And then we need to, I think we're already supplying things like anti-tank weapons and air defense missiles, stingers. But then my question is, can we make those MiGs that are in Poland uh, compatible with the MiGs that are in Ukraine? Because one is NATO, so the radios are NATO radios. The uh, the squawking IFF, uh, identify friend or foe is, is NATO. If we can do that, we need to Re revisit that because those those are powerful weapons. But then also we can we have standoff intel that we can give them AWACS, J stars. So we can be if we can be talking to them, we could be telling them where the Russians are moving. We can be directing their air force. So there are more more things that we can be doing. But we need to be leading in this effort, not with troops on the ground, not going into Ukraine, but giving them every support we can. One factor in all this I want to quickly go to uh, has to do with this um, effort that is coming out of the World Economic Forum and the, the kind of globalist mindset that is looking, pushing toward this great reset, you know, that they think they're going to use their power. And, and it's essentially a notion that ultimately the world would be better off to have some kind of international governance, socialist, globalist kind of thing. And then there are people saying, no, the... Um, it, nationalism matters, nation states matter, America is unique and special. Uh, I am more concerned now than I've ever been in my life that this international globalist thinking, which I used to think was kind of just confined to the very wealthy elite, um, you know, international types, that really that the thinking has sunk down more and more into the common man's thinking that maybe there's not such a great need for nation states and maybe America is not so special and unique and somehow letting the UN World Economic Forum type people push their agenda isn't really such a bad idea. First of all, you think that's taken hold much? You think many Americans are open to that? And, and how do you react to that? No, I don't think they're open to it. Uh, I think it really hasn't impacted them yet. But when it impacts them, uh, I think it will make a difference because we're starting to realize uh, that we need to be self-sufficient in energy, rare earths, minerals, and and food and so, medicine and medicine medicine uh, out of china absolutely so when it starts to impact our families that's when you'll see them wake up and say no that's not what i want yeah there is a um, i have that i think for most 
of us. We think of America, you know, we are the single superpower, we've been the most wealthy and prosperous and orderly and stable, and we've almost become too comfortable in that, and thinking also that we're being kind of enlightened to allow manufacturing to move abroad and to be reliant on China for medicine. So I, I love the notion of, of a resurgence of the importance, uniqueness of America, and I think some of that messaging can come from Congress that, that just has to say, we're, we're not going to keep on in a system where we saw how dangerous it was with COVID, that China's making most of our medicines. I mean, that, that was one of the Trump messages, too, just kind of a renewal of the uh, American spirit and, and self-reliance. Do you have a thought? Um, the last generation in America that really saw widespread deprivation was my mother's generation. She's 90, just short of 90 the Depression and World War II. Yeah. That's the last generation. Now we've had small, short episodes and obviously individuals have hardship, but for widespread deprivation, it's been several generations. So that's, that's my concern, is when deprivation happens, will we be able to rebound? I think we will, because freedom and liberty are, are, are ingrained in America, American we DNA. still enjoy it. Um, so I'm, I am not that pessimistic about the World Economic Forum. They are, they've got an agenda and they're pushing it hard, but uh, I think we're, again, back to this awakening of America. I think we're there. Don't you think Trump helped with that? Oh, absolutely. He was an obstacle in the in the path to uh, socialism. He was a speed bump that wouldn't quit. No, absolutely. <laughs> That's a good line. A absolutely. He w he disrupted their plans uh, several orders of magnitude. Yeah. I also what I love about Trump many things, but I love that he kind of reengaged the American spirit. He made people because I think what happened is they woke up and realized how the left had slowly and not confrontationally in your face, but kind of more ideologically undermined love of America, uh, belief in the goodness and greatness and uniqueness of America. And Trump just kind of, because he talks so much about America and how great it was and how great the people are, it caused people to recognize that's not how the left talks. And it helped them see what the left had done to our culture. But he, the thing he did was he found a way around the media. Yeah. He's the first president in forever that found a way around the media. He did, well, yeah. And then they, which talking was directly or, to the American people. Yeah. That's what he did differently. Yeah, he did. And with Twitter especially, you know, when he yeah. can get on that and the media could not show, it was fabulous. Okay, here's what Rick Scott had to say. Why don't you share your thoughts about this? One was, um, he says, number one, he's got 11 points. We're going to inspire patriotism, stop teaching revisionist history of the radical left. Kids must learn the wisdom of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights of Founding Fathers. Uh, and I, I assume you agree with that, but I mean, how does Congress do that? That's a great question because we are we are in a conundrum. We want to do away with the Department of Education, and yet, as the as the national government, should we be doing that? Encouraging it, yes, but uh, we should not uh, nationalize education. We've already done that too much. So encourage, yes, uh, but I don't know how the National Congress does that. What I want to see is 
good conservatives runs for school boards. I want to see school boards change. I said in a presentation probably a month ago now, uh, two moms in Prosper, Texas, Red Collin County, saw what happened in Virginia. They went into their elementary and middle school libraries and they had quotes up on the board from their middle school and elementary libraries that I would not read in mixed company. Yeah. We're not talking about pornography. We're not talking about overt pornography. We're talking about descriptive overt pornography in Red Collin County. We've got to change the school board. So I love his ideas, but I think that's got to remain at the local level. You know, local level, I will say, I think the state legislatures that are doing a great deal about education, education policy, it, it takes them too, pushing Absolutely. on the state education boards. And, um, and there, it's just an amazing thing. It's like when the school, the parents start to try to fight critical race theory. You can pass a state law that says no more critical race theory. But schools, they go, okay, well, no one write critical race theory in the board, but the ideology, the idea just keeps seeping in. So it's a, it's a broadly wide awake electorate that can fight. You've just described the problem. The state lawmakers can pass laws, but you've got mm -hmm. to have someone at the local level that's monitoring it. And it's, it's kind of like that eternal vigilance thing too, because for those invested in education who want that, you know, they're just looking for, okay, I'm complying with this rule, but I can bring it in. I mean, there are people who have been presenting curricula that their kids brought home that were like in math. I mean, in non-history subjects that were just, a, you know, should be straight up wherever it is math. And somehow in the problems and the word problems they create, right. they're weaving it back in. Yeah, it, right. it is a, I mean, much of what America faces, I mean, I, I always, you love to think Congress can fix it, you know, or the Senate can fix it, or the state government, but it's a, it's a really broad-based rising up of people everywhere. Yes. Okay. Next one was, Mr. Uh, Senator Rick Scott had, was colorblind equality. We're going to eliminate racial politics in America. Um, no government policy based on race, um, you know, I mean, colleges and universities that favor or discriminate against students based on race are ineligible for federal funding. You think Congress should take a lead in that effort? Absolutely. Uh, this is one where the rule of law needs to apply. If there's a crime committed, a racial crime, it's a crime. It has no bearing on whether it's color-based or not. No, the law should be colorblind. And if there's a crime, it's a crime. Punish the crime, but don't make it a social issue. Yeah, you know, it's an amazing thing. America elected Barack Obama twice mm -hmm. with, you know, plenty of votes by people of every race, ethnicity, national origin, skin color. Uh, and yet now we are here in 2022, 2021, 22, just endless discussion of the, you know, vast systemic discrimination, systemic racism, institutional racism. And it just, it's become obvious to more people. You're, you were saying earlier that people are awakening to uh, socialism. They don't want that. They're awakening to the World Economic Forum. People are awakening to the way, way in which race has been contorted into a political issue, a power issue. But it's hard for Republicans to speak up on that one, don't you think? It is. It's very difficult. But I think that's where we fall back on the principles. Don't engage in the issue. Fall back on the principles of the rule of law because that is the principle on which we've got to stand here because uh, you can debate the institutionalization of it, which I don't think exists, uh, because the law is very clear. Uh, the, the national law is very clear. So don't engage on their, it's 
we always lose the verbiage battle. We're losing the verbiage battle in that issue particularly. Don't engage in that verbiage battle. Go back to the principle, which is the rule of law. Yeah. We, it is amazing. Uh, verbiage battle is a very eloquent way to put it. You know, the, the left has, they, I have often said in my show, they just win the slogan slinging battle. That's right. They have a very short three or four words slogan. They sling it out. Every Democrat in America repeats it. Right. And there's no substance, no bullet points, no explanation. And our side is trying to explain why that is inaccurate. And but we don't fight in that way. And we, we and um, and we. It's, I would say because we're more thoughtful on our side and we try to look at real facts, but we end up losing a lot of battles because of that. Right. Yeah. Okay. So this is a actually an interesting one given what President Trump decided to do. So a third one, Mr. Senator Rick Scott, will enforce our laws, all of them, increase penalties for theft and violent crime. Well, obviously, most crimes are prosecuted at the state level. I mean, there, you know, it's, right. there are federal crimes and, and there are federal prosecutions, but he's talking about pulling back on, um, uh, on this effort that's been made, especially under President Trump, the effort was made to change certain penalties, change the practice of, of uh, how long people are incarcerated and um, change procedures related to bond, you know, posting bail and all of that. Basically, he's saying, you know, we've gotten to a problem where the system kind of honors the criminal more than the uh, victim. So is that Accurate, you think? Is he right? Uh, absolutely. But the people will also determine that. I mean, when you look at the Democrat-led states, our cities, uh, they're coming to realize that that doesn't work. Uh, you know, people want stability in their life. They want safety in their lives. They want to be able to go about their lives without crime. Uh, and that means that eventually they're going to turn and they're going to want uh, more uh, criminal penalties, severer punishments. I'm in favor of severe punishment, and for the really, really long crimes. Also, you know, it's a really interesting thing, kind of ties back into the question about race. Part of what President Trump did, and I think it was actually very fair to say, I do think in historically in America, uh, you know, people will point to incarceration rates, or point to average sentencing, and you, it's a premise you can't prove or disprove whether in the minds of jurors or judges there has been a tendency to either find guilty after a jury trial or incarcerate people longer or shorter based on skin color. But that was the argument. But in the effort to try to correct that, and you don't, you always want to root out racism at every you know granular level to biggest level there can be. You always want to root it out. But it ended up being to where we had the situations in many, like the ones you're alluding to in jurisdictions where a really bad crime would occur, a, person be arrested and and pretty clear they did it and post bail and they go back out and commit another violent crime so that's again it's a it's a signaling from the federal level more than just the the um and a validation to people who want severe um, punishment isn't that right I and mean, the, what the federal level can do it is, but still you're going to have the local implementation of that so the local DAs and the local state AG or the state AGs, they're going to do as they choose to do under state law because most crimes, as you alluded to earlier, are state crimes. Uh, now we've had a, a, a federal crimes have grown too fast and too, too many, but most crimes are still at the state level or the local level. So, as we used to say, states are laboratories of democracy, and some of them are finding out that their laboratories are failing them. Uh, Washington State, for instance. So, you know, we, we just need to, to, those people will decide 
what they want to be like. People ask me all the time, how are we going to get rid of Nancy Pelosi? And I'm like, guys, Nancy Pelosi represents her district very well. <laughs> she does. She does what they want. You're That's right. right. So, you know, we're not going to get rid of her until they decide to get rid of her. Okay. I, you know, I'm, a couple of things, I'm going to go about these issues, but what's your thought about the House Freedom Caucus? I look forward to getting to know them. I've already had one conversation uh, with, um, with a member, uh, and I look forward to getting to know them, and I suspect that uh, they will be some of the people that I will lean on. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure this is still the case at one point. I just actually many years ago, but Congressman Gilbert was on the show was making the point, the House Freedom Caucus, one thing to join, you had to commit essentially, if we decide to vote X on a certain issue, you're going to vote with us. And he was saying, you know, I, I, I have to be in charge of my own vote. That's right. And if that's the case, then I probably won't be a member, but I'll certainly be a, uh, I think I will be aligned with them. Aligned with them. But views. that was part of the conversation I had. Okay, I was going to say because and I they never... mentioned Louis Gomer. <laughs> well, because we had this conversation on my show, yeah, and I, I, I love that spirit that just says, you know, I want to bend, and I think you can be supportive of conservative views, but if anything you go up there and join tells you your vote is must be dictated, yeah, you, you kind of lost the reason you said you ran. Which... Ronald Reagan said it's not the right or the left; it's up to the highest ideals of man's freedom consistent with civil society or down to the trash heap of tyranny. So it can come from the left or the right. You got to be careful. Okay. We don't, today's left, I'm not going to give too much credence to that, but yes, generally speaking, I mean, you know, I mean, honestly, I, I do feel like today's American left has been successful in moving more and more and more to the left. Absolutely. And, they, and so, you know, they may emerge with a you know, kind of bizarre, one-off, really good ideas. Okay, I can go with that. But I mean, their overall premise is very government-controlled society, very socialist. And I um, and, and actually, I want to ask you this too. This is off my issues thing, but people lament that when it appears that when people go to Washington, the left they stick together. It just just almost inevitably. I mean, they stick together, defend each other, support each other. And because they never really ever compromise, it feels like the country gets pulled to the left because Republicans are always trying to strike a deal, to find some center ground. And the center ground moves from anything approaching rational center more and more to the left. Is that an accurate observation? Compromise today really means that the Republicans have caved to the Democrats. Yes. I don't see it any other way. The Democrats never cave to the Republicans, never. So how are we going to change that? Uh, we need to get a backbone, the entire Republican caucus. And so, you know, what, what, in part what occurs, it, it, these are all tying together because what occurs is if the entire caucus says, you know what, we're going to stand strong on this really great bill and then the left starts the um, media mockery mob, as I often call them, but they started, well, now the Republicans are saying, and then they pounce on something or a characterization of it, and it becomes so easy for people on our side to say, well, I don't want to be called that, uh, and so they, they cave. So it's just, it's like the backbone melding has to happen. How many times have they said they're going to uh, repeal Obamacare? How many votes have we had to repeal Obamacare? Dozens. Dozens. So do you think that if you have the majority, the Republicans have majority House and Senate, is it at this point still a good idea to try to repeal Obamacare? Uh, do you think they'll even try? Well, will they try, right? But should they try? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Now, that's a verbiage battle. Repeal Obamacare has a lot of 
a lot of cachet with conservatives and Republican voters. Now, how you implement that, the details, is what the Republicans ought to be most interested in. Yeah, you know, part of the whole Obamacare thing I tried to say during that battle was when people think that what Obamacare will do is make sure that those the poorest among us have have access to health care, if that's what you think Obamacare is, well, sure, sure, yes, you know, you don't want anyone in a country unable to get health care, and, and so you... You can get down the path. Go ahead. Yeah, but that's not what it was. There are 89 different means-tested programs in the safety net in this nation for well over a trillion dollars. Do we need 89 different means-tested programs? I think not. Oh, I think not, too. Speaking of all these programs, I don't know if you saw the omnibus uh, spending bill. Uh, I guess the House must have passed it yesterday. It was supposed to be up for a vote yesterday. I didn't even look. In if it was I think it's today. Today? Uh, this be okay. Maybe it was they they released it at midnight. I think that was. I think you're right. It was a day ago. That's uh, that's that is uh, gamesmanship at its worst. Twenty four hundred pages. Right. Now I'm a pretty fast reader, and I actually care. I like gobble up politics. Twenty four hundred pages, or no, twenty seven hundred pages with a twenty four hundred page addendum explaining what was in the, the other pages really? and they had 12 hours to look at it so right. and this happens it's not like this was a, a fluke this happens almost every time I mean is there is there a path to ever get back to more rational and an honest budgeting where you people have time is there a path to do that when was the last time the Congress used their one October deadline to pass a budget 1996 ah 1996 uh, I, I have no idea what the answer to your question is, but you cannot manage a multiple trillion dollar economy two and three months at a time with a continuing resolution or an omnibus bill because you know what an omnibus bill is going to have in it. Poison pills to us. Do we even have time to find the poison pills right, in not. the omnibus bill? We don't. Yeah. Heritage or one of those groups put out a you know real quick, hey, we just skimmed it here. Eight things are terrible. Whatever it was, 10 things are terrible, but you can't even, I mean, there's no, and the, and the problem, as it obviously is, is it's going to have some good things in the bill. Sure. And so someone, you know, so a Republican goes up there and they see this is a crazy bill full of lots of poison pills. So you vote no. And then the one little thing that was a good thing is what your opponent goes back to your constituents as well. You know, he voted against this. And when you you know, because you, your one bill, your one vote covers the entire bill. No, I'm, I'm a military veteran, of course. The National Defense Authorization Act, the recent one, the original bill included women's draft and red, uh, red flag laws. Those are the pills, poison pills you've got to be looking for. And then you're put in the, in the position of do we vote against it, as you said, or do you vote for it and accept the poison pills, or do you try to get them out? That's how they get these poison pills through, though, for must-pass bills. Exactly. And this one also had, someone was using the expression airdropped earmarks into it or something, but just they put a bunch of earmarks in very late. And which earmarks we were trying to get rid of, I don't know when that was, a couple of years ago. Oh, that was going to be gone, and now you can put them right back in there. I don't know. You know, I, I can, I, it's, 
I'm so glad you're running for Congress. And what I'm posing, I recognize, are big issues, and they've been happening for a long time. Right. Obviously, not one person is going to solve them. Right. But you really want at least people going to Congress recognizing this isn't the way we should be doing our jobs. Right. Right. Isn't the way. Okay. So what else, Mr. Okay. Uh, we talked about that one. Oh, immigration. This is another big. Rick Scott, oh, of his 11 points, this is number four. Uh, he says, nations have, he called, he wrote, nations have borders. We should give that a try. So on immigration, do you support trying, yeah, do you support funding the wall? Two walls with a patrol lane in between. Build Tell two walls. Tell me how walls. that would work. Israel's done it. You build two walls, you put a patrol lane in between with sand. Uh, East Germany did it. It works. Walls work. Uh, yes, we need a wall. We need, we need a wall that works. Now, because what they, again, back to the verbiage battle, what they're going to say is no wall is perfect. That's okay. No wall needs to be perfect. But we need to have walls that work, covered every obstacle, military mindset you cover it with sensors or whatever, so that you also know when people are moving. But um, walls work, and it's an act of sovereignty. It's not an act of anti-humanitarianism. It's an act of sovereignty. Is is another issue where the left gets some mileage out of their slogan slinging mode, mm -hmm. where they, if you say, well, yes, of course we need a wall. In fact, when Donald Trump first began speaking about that, we have to have a wall. A lot of the language about him, the accusations were it was xenophobic, it was um, you know discriminatory, it was bigoted, and you know he's just big enough person and just didn't really care what anybody said. He kept pushing it, but I think even when he had a Republican majority the first two years of his presidency, he couldn't get them to uh, push the wall in the way he wanted. I think they did fund a small portion, but I mean, so if we have the Republican majority, oh, actually, there's a whole other question. So you get the Republican majority. Isn't it smart? Pass what we stand for and let Biden veto it. Absolutely. Perfectly said. That's those bills that we need to have ready to go. Pass them, put them on his desk and see if he's going to veto them. Well, it really sets up our, our own elections of 2024 Absolutely. that just say, you know, here's what the Republicans want, here's what they want. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that. I love, and I have heard people say, well, what's the point of passing it if he won't sign it? Oh, there's a huge point. I've, I've heard Republican congressmen say, well, we didn't have the votes anyway, so I had to vote with them. What? That's, that is, uh, that's weak. And we're suffering from our weak president around the world. We may get to that, maybe not, but, uh, but that's a weak response. Oh, it's terrible. So if we had a Republican majority, House and Senate, and Republican White House, and we finally get a, ball, a wall built. And the next issue is going to be looking at immigration and deciding how you move forward with immigration policy. Do we need a big overhaul of immigration? Or should, as many people have advocated, should we just say, we're going to cut off immigration for about 10 years until we get our house in order? What's the right approach? Um, I don't think we need to cut off legal immigration. We need to cut off illegal immigration immediately. And frankly, we've got to get past, in order to do that, we've got to get past this issue, this excuse of posse comitatus. It says that you can't use the U.S. military for internal police action. The border is an international border, just like the beaches on both the east and west coast. Put the military on the border to protect our sovereignty. You ask about immigration, though. I think if we just started by enforcing the laws that are already on the books, we'd be a thousand percent better. Uh, we would. We would, including I somehow would love to have Congress defund all sanctuary cities 
Just no federal funds coming to you. If those who will harbor illegal immigrants, immigrants, is that too much? No, no, that's that should happen. Plus, we've got to stop the uh, non-governmental organizations who are aiding and abetting illegal activity. So there are organizations that hide behind their NGO status, but they're breaking the law. We need to stop that as well. Yep. We do. Okay, um, so this show, um, we have about nine minutes left. And um, for our radio audience, I forgot to say at the beginning, for our radio audience, this is America Can We Talk. My name is Debbie Georgiatis. Our website is americacanwetalk.org. At that website, you can find all of our past shows, all of our past interviews, all of our Why It Matters, which has become a really popular feature. We summarize, uh, not on Thursdays, but the other three days of the week uh, that I do this show, we summarize, we talk about Why It Matters matters. Our blog is all there. So americacanwetalk.org. Great way to be in touch with us. And you can always listen to the shows and re-listen to this interview or others later. So, but we have an in-studio audience on Thursdays and we um, have a microphone uh, over there. And so if people would like to ask a question of our guest, uh, you can do that. I will urge you to remember that this has to go out on air. So hold the microphone close to your mouth and speak up, please. Um, and then um, if you if you guys don't have questions, I have plenty more, but I'd love to have yours. So go right ahead. Hello, Keith. Uh, thank you for getting back in the battle um, and, and giving up that nice life. Um, so I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm recognizing a lot of people waking up, but I don't think that it's we're, it's us that they're after, it's our children. And so uh, what are your thoughts on all that money from Biden, all that elementary, you know, ESSER funds, you know, just billions, trillion, I don't know, tons of money going to our schools and how that is affecting how our children perceive America and global citizen. I mean, I think that's where the problem lies and wondered what you thought. It is, it is a problem. This is uh, one of the impacts of uh, making senators a uh, popular vote way back when, uh, because we now have no way to stop that at the state level. They simply bypass local government, state government, and send the money directly down. They did it with COVID money as well. They send it directly down, which, so the states and the local authorities play no part in that. So that's the problem. We don't have a, we don't have a uh, speed bump at the state or local level. Uh, so you're right. I mean, that's what government does. It distributes resources. That's what government is all about. And that's something we need to stop. And I think a Republican majority probably will. <laughs> I, hope, I hope they will. <laughs> Another question? While you're thinking, I want to quick ask you something, and then we will pass. I saw the hand start to go up. You can, we can pass it. But do you think that Congress has spent enough money on um, COVID relief? I mean, should we just be done with, with any f further COVID relief in terms of handing out to people who? Absolutely. Uh, money is a commodity. So we've got too much money sloshing around the system today. That's why we have inflation because we've got too much money in the money supply. And people have made that case. It's not original with me. Uh, so absolutely, we need to stop passing out money uh, for whatever reason, because right now we're gonna suffer the consequences of high inflation because we've got too much money sloshing around the America today. Well, on the subject of the omnibus spending bill, honest to goodness, it feels like people in Washington they have a, a feel like a child would, like a small child would say, you know, mommy and daddy, I want to go to Hawaiian vacation. And they don't c comprehend the parents say, well, we really can only afford to go camping at the state park over here this year. That's all we can afford. 
because you, as a parent, you know what your budget is. But Washington, it seems like they spend like the small child. What I want, I can find money because somehow there's this endless well of money. And especially on the left, I believe it's used to create dependency and then therefore to create future voters. Well, back to Ronald Reagan. He said that the closest thing to eternal life on earth is a government program. Because once you establish a program, you have a constituency, and that constituency, when you try to take the program away from them, regardless of how good, beneficial, or not it is, uh, they will scream and holler, and so it never goes away. Uh, We still have a rural electrification uh, agency somewhere in the government. Oh, in case rural people don't have electricity? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, you know, and we could go on, but uh, there are many organizations that are well past their useful life that uh, we still fund. So that's the problem. We've got to start seeing what we can cut, not just cut future spending. We need to be paring out some of the things that are waste and abuse. Yeah, I I would love to have a whole show just talking about the EPA and cutting out their spending, but... Is there was some other hand went up, I believe. Okay. Yeah, I feel like we have passed socialism, quite frankly. I feel like we're closer to communism. And especially, there's, it's for so many different reasons. One being our hospitals, just our medical, our health care. How do you feel about that? Well, it's Maggie Thatcher that said, if you want to control the people, control their health care. Uh, because uh, the most important th- to you, the most important thing to you is probably your family. What's second most important to you? It's your health. If you're not healthy, you want to be healthy. You want to get well. Uh, so uh, it's a great point. But on the other hand, I don't. I don't. Uh, I think this is a redeemable situation. I'm not saying you're wrong, but I think we can draw back. And the thing that we've not addressed here is the spiritual climate of America, because I, I frankly think that in, uh, we need we need revival in America so that there is because if if we don't have a conscience in our people, you can't hire enough police. You can't pass enough laws to make people moral. I love that point. Actually, was there another question? I'm jumping. OK, that point. Actually, one of his um, Rick Scott's points was about the family. And the nuclear family has been under attack, and it does tie into what you were just speaking about, the idea of just removing this, the kind of biblically created sense of nuclear family and the responsibility, the role of marriage. And it has been pushed aside uh, by court decisions and kind of by popular culture, too. It's just treated as kind of as trendy. It, the trendy thing is to be more modern and not think the nuclear family matters so much. But I would assume you're agreeing with him. Nuclear family is a, a huge part of restoration of it is I think there are three things that for us to get to where you think we're going uh, there are three things they must destroy the progressive left must destroy it's our faith our judeo-christian foundations and faith it's the family and that's our history because our history is so replete with exactly what you were talking about so that's it faith family and history if you if you destroy those three in America then you have a a um, a moral society I love that. So now you're running for Congress, and these are, you know, these are issues that, I mean, this room clapped about it. I think every place you go, people love that. But as a member of Congress, or, or the role, is, isn't it largely, 
like a bully pulpit role, or, or I mean, to where publicly be able to bully is a wrong word, but you have a, a public voice because you're in Congress to give voice those ideas, and, and that's a big. It seems like that's a big role or a big way in which you can bring about those changes. Right? I start. I started with that. I want to return a voice to CD3. We started this interview with that. Yeah, that's exactly part of it. It is, and um, I think if more people, and I've actually noticed, just, and you all, this is my audience probably, I assume you have too, I've just noticed in recent years, people who used to just talk about tax policy, border policy, uh, military policy, more people, no matter what they, their focus is, have gone back to the idea, you can't get to right answers just on policy. You've got to have some root to it. And in America, it's been the Judeo-Christian culture, the Judeo, the basic teachings of the Bible, have allowed us to have a moral core, and you hear more people recognizing that than ever in American history. We are in a war for the soul of this nation. Make no mistake about it. We've talked about policy here, but at the bottom of at the bottom line here, we are in a war for the soul of our nation, and the progressive left wants to destroy those three things we talked about. And you know, I agree with you completely. So faith, family, and our history want to destroy. And because the agenda, the reason they want to destroy them is because all of those stand in the way of their mission to bring America to socialism. Is that well, if the federal government is going to be all powerful, autonomous, you've got to destroy that base that we just talked about. So the goal is to make the government absolutely all powerful. And if I answer to a higher authority, then I, the federal government is not my ultimate authority. Absolutely. Uh, you know, there's a woman here in the Dallas area uh, who, whom you may know about. But anyway, she, um, Virginia Prodan, she grew up mm -hmm. in Romania mm -hmm. under communism. Right. And she just says the short line, the reason communists need to destroy faith is because they need, the communist government needs to be God to you. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, actually, she does a beautiful job explaining that. And I think to many people, they it, it's a puzzling sounding thing, but they, the leftists, the communists, the, the socialists in America today, they need people to be worshipful of and deferential to entirely to what the government is, wants. Mm -hmm. And if you answer to a higher power, to God, yeah. which you are not supposed to talk about now in the public square, but if you are a follower of Jesus, if you answer to a higher authority, then the government is not your ultimate authority. Absolutely. And that's what I was saying a moment ago. I, I have a friend who's a former, you know, Marine and FBI, and a very serious. Uh, and he, he's on a, a weekly call with some people. And he said at the end of the call now, almost every week, they, they start in prayer, they end in prayer, and people make more reference to because they recognize you can't. We can't correct everything that's off track in America without God. That's right. If, if we must have a conscience in order to have the rule of law. One right. follows the other. Without a conscience, it's simply power among people. Yep. And without a sense of truth of, of God's creation and of, of man as his creation of God, there's no reason to reject any new idea that comes along. If you convince the majority to go with it, that becomes truth. That's right. You take away truth. That's right. Well, Keith, I'm so glad you were available today. This was a great um, opportunity to speak Thank to you. Thank you for having me. My goodness. It was wonderful. And I'd love if you could tell our listeners how they find your website and how they can read more about you and support you. So I want to... Uh, you bet. Uh, my website is KeithSelf.com, and on Facebook, I'm uh, KeithSelfTX uh, on Facebook, and 
uh, or you can email me at keith at keithself.com. Wow, you gave out an email address. Okay. <laughs> That's great. You did that. Okay. Well, I mean, I will talk for our listeners, you know, because this is a congressional race. Uh, the website you just heard, you can go that Anyone can make a donation there. Uh, there are federal limits on the amount of donations, but it's not donations are not limited to people in your district or even your state. So you're hearing someone, I think, if you, I really want to, we probably covered too many issues too quickly, but I wanted to really feature what an extraordinary candidate we have running for Congress out of the great state of Texas and urge you, if you're following this, this race this fall and following the idea of how important it is for Republicans to take back the House and Senate, this is a great candidate to support. So go to his website, check it out, consider uh, whether you might want to support it, because this is how we, the people, take back the country, is we get at least control um, of government, which is at this point, sadly, uh, pretty out of control and controlled by the, as I like to call on my show, the anti-American left. Folks, this is I'm Debbie Georgettis. This is America Can We Talk, and I thank you so much for tuning in every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. Thank you. America Can We Talk? Truth about America. Can